We're in Ezekiel chapter 37 tonight. 47, excuse me. There are 48 chapters, obviously, in the book of Ezekiel. And I've, I've um, determined that this will be the final sermon. And I'm stopping one chapter short for the following reasons. Since we've picked up, I think it really it was chapter 40, there have been a number of themes that God keeps repeating. It's the new Jerusalem, the new temple, it's the eternal estate. And we see the various measurements of the various pieces of furniture, namely the burnt, the burnt um, offering um, altar and so on. It, it's, it's fairly similar thematically. And chapter 47 introduces us to a couple of new things. And specifically, I want to consider the living water from verses 1 through 12, but I'll read the entire chapter. So I thought we'd end with this particular chapter, which I'm arguing is pointing forward to the eternal estate. I, I know that it's pointing forward to the eternal estate. The Apostle John and on the Isle of Patmos, I think it's chapter 21, which I hope to quote from the book of Revelation, takes the exact same language. This, this, this river of living water with leaves on trees for the healing of the nations is repeated verbatim um, as indicative of the internal estate. So I'll read that as we get there. So that's my, that's my purpose. 48, chap- 48 sermons. I didn't plan it that way, but this is the 48th sermon of our series. So Ezekiel 47, beginning to read at verse 1. Hear the holy and the perfect word of our holy and perfect God. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house towards the east, For the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under and from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate, led me around on the outside to the outer gate by the way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out towards the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits. He led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand, led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand, led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand. It was a river that I could ford, not ford, for the water had risen enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, These waters go down out towards the eastern region and go down into the Arabah, Then they go towards the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live, and there will be very many fish. These waters go there, and other waters become fresh. Everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that the fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to the Engalim. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side, on the other side, all kinds of tree for food. Their leaves will not be, will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be food and their leaves for healing. Thus says the Lord God, this shall be the boundary by which you shall divide the land for an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall divide it for an inheritance, each one equally with the other. For I swore to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. 
This shall be the boundary of the land on the north side from the great sea by the way of Hethlon to the entrance of Zedad, Hamath, Berotha, Sibraim, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, Hazer, Hatikon, which is the border of Haruan. The border shall extend from the sea to Hazar Enan to the border of Damascus, and on the north towards the north its border of Hamath, this is the north side, on the east side between Haruran, Damascus, Gilead, and the land of Israel shall be the Jordan from the north border to the eastern sea you shall measure. This is the east side. The south side towards the south shall extend from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribah Kadesh to the brook of Egypt to the great sea. This is the south side towards the south. The west side shall be the great sea from the south border to the point opposite Libo Hamath. This is the west side. So you shall divide this land amongst yourself according to the tribes of Israel. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves, among the aliens who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. They shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And in the tribe with which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are our God. You are infinite, eternal, and perfectly unchangeable. You are worthy of all our adoration and worship and service. I pray, Almighty God, as your servant, even as your herald, that you would guide me, thou my great Jehovah. The meditations of my heart, the words of my lips would be according to your scripture. You would receive glory, and you would build your people up. Call in your elect ones to Christ. Build us all up in you, Jesus Christ. And create in us a passionate longing to see you face to face, to long for that eternal estate. We will worship you perfectly forever and ever and enjoy you forever and ever. I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I mentioned just by way of information at the beginning that this is our final sermon in the book of Ezekiel. My intention is next Lord's Day evening, if the Lord wills, to start an evening series in the book of Psalms with an eye to look at Messianic Psalms. I think there are 25 specific, specifically Messianic Psalms. I'm not sure if my intention is to take all 25, but that's at least the plan. If you could commit that to prayer for me, that the Lord would help me in um, beginning that series. Um, I, I, I want to mainly focus on tonight on verses 1 through 12, these um, these waters of life, these living waters, these life-giving waters, this river that flows out of the temple, and it actually flows and covers the promised land. The second half, 13 through 23, is obviously the dividing up of the promised land among the 12 tribes. And I would argue, in keeping with what we've been looking at, is the symbolical use of the Old Testament ceremonial law figures pointing forward to the eternal estate, that that's what we're looking at here. Um, The book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells me that that's what we're looking at. The eternal estate, the the, the promised land that the believers were looking for in the Old Testament was not renovated Palestine. I'm not picking on Palestine, but it wasn't renovated Palestine. It was the new heavens and the new earth. Read Hebrews chapter 1, I think it's 41, 40 verses. And so the promised land that we're looking for 
and the new Jerusalem, the new city, is, is, is not made with human hands. It's the eternal estate. And so when we come to um, the, these living waters covering the promised land, it's a picture of what God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will do and does do for us uh, as it reaches its zenith when we're in the eternal estate. We'll be in the promised land, and then sin will be no more. So, so I want to focus in on those living waters. Since it's the final ser- sermon of this particular series, I think it would be helpful for us as we're closing up the book to remind ourselves of the historical context of the entire book of Ezekiel. The historical context is the Babylonian captivity. You know that God told his children, who he saved from a previous captivity, there are two captivities in the Bible. There's the larger captivity, and then there's the minor, the smaller captivity. The larger captivity is when God's people are enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, and then he emancipates them, he liberates them, and he frees them, and he brings them into the promised land. So that's the larger captivity. And then the smaller or the minor captivity is what we are looking at here in this particular book. It's the Babylonian captivity. It's when Israel goes away for seven years into Babylonian captivity. It's not specifically Israel. It's specifically uh, Judah. Uh, Prior in 722, God took um, Israel, specifically Israel, the northern kingdoms, um, and took it away into Assyrian captivity. But primarily when we're talking about slavery and and then captivity and then freedom, it's the larger and the smaller, Egypt, Babylon. So we're looking at here the Egyptian, excuse me, the Babylonian captivity. And so God had told his people for the sin of living like a Gentile, the punishment was going to be to live with the Gentiles. It's a principle in the Bible that's known sometimes by the Latin lex talionis. It means perfect justice. So it fits perfectly. If you want to live like a Gentile and worship the, the fallen gods of the Gentile, I'm going to chastise you by living with the Gentiles. But God promises through the prophet Jeremiah, I think through Isaiah as well, clearly through Ezekiel, that after 70 years, God would bring his people back. So there's a couple of themes associated with what I just mentioned that perhaps I'll I'll draw out in just a bit. But I, I do want us to think about the idea of sinning brings slavery, and then by God's grace, he brings freedom or liberation. Um, that's the lie of the devil. I mentioned it this morning in Sunday school. The devil, is he's a, the father of lies. And so what he does is he promises us and he says, well, if you eat this sweet fruit, you'll be like a god. You, you won't need the god. And so it's a lie. So he, he promises by taking that which will give us bondage will be ultimate freedom. It's the exact opposite of what happens. So he promises freedom and it brings bondage. So sin brings misery. Holiness brings happiness which is why this book ends on an exceedingly high note or a happy note, because it brings us to heaven. Jonathan Edwards is not known as a happy, clappy preacher. And sometimes Jonathan Edwards, sadly, is only known by his Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon. It's not the only thing he wrote. He was a prolific writer. I used to read a ton of Jonathan Edwards. I I don't anymore, but I used to read a ton. And he has a, a sermon on heaven being a place of consummate happiness. You don't think that Jonathan Edwards writes such a sermon. Heaven is so happy because it's perfectly holy. And so sin brings sorrow, slavery, bondage, and then God, by his grace, sets his people free. So that's some of the historical context. In addition to the whole notion of 
slavery freedom, slavery freedom, freedom always by God's gracious hand. The people of God did not free themselves either from Egypt or Babylon. God freed them. You remember with the Egyptian captivity, God persuaded Pharaoh to let his children go, and he used plagues to do it. He hardened, God, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Paul tells us in the book of Romans that for this very reason, God raised up Pharaoh to enslave his people so that he could knock Pharaoh down and show his people in the whole world that God is God and Pharaoh is not God. And then even with the uh, Babylonian captivity, the way that God liberated or emancipated his people is he moved the, the heart of a pagan king like a, riv- like a river. It was Cy- Cyrus. And he, he compelled Cyrus to say, I'm going to make a decree and I'm going to let the people of God go and we'll even pay for the rebuilding of Judea and the, and the, um, and the temple in Jerusalem. So slavery for sin, liberation by God's gracious hand. There is another theme that's very, that's associated with the themes that we just spoke about, kind of building the context of Ezekiel. And it's the theme of banishment. We don't often think of banishment in the modern world. Um, Even in the American context, most of you all know that I come from New England. My mother was born and raised in Plymouth. And so I have um, William Bradford's Plymouth Plantation Diaries. It's a really neat little read. It's it's not lengthy at all. It probably cost you 10 bucks on Amazon. And in it, if you broke the rules of plantation and you were a habitual rule breaker law breaker they would banish you and they would they wouldn't kill you they would put you out of the plantation out of the colony and they would send you to another state in the case where they used to like to banish people to uh, Rhode Island it was considered the latrine of the new the new world they sent their heretics there and Hutchinson and some other people but they would banish you and to be banished from Plymouth Plantation in the immediate context meant almost certain death because you'd be put outside of the safety of the people of God and so on. So what we're looking at regarding those enslavements and then liberations is the notion of banishment. The people of God have been banished from the land. It's a covenantal curse. The book of Deuteronomy talks about it. If you obey, I'll keep you in the promised land. If you disobey, I'm going to take you out of the promised land. So it's considered, this banishment is considered a covenantal curse. And they are, these people are suffering under that. And the the notion of banishment has to do with the land. Um, You're being taken away from the good land and you're being banished. Part of the punishment is being taken out of the good land and sent to a land of sorrow. And what we're looking at here, the, the book begins with banishment to the bad land. And the, the ending of the book is liberation for the good land, for the good place. We are in Babylon. The apostle Peter says, she who is in Babylon greets you. We are, we are essentially in a howling wasteland. We're, we're pilgrims. We are not in the good land, so to speak. And someday, very, very soon, a day I think sooner, it will catch many of us by surprise. We will be brought into the land of everlasting delight. So banishment from the good land to the bad land, and then ultimately to be taken to this good place, this good realm. So we're exchanging a place of sorrow for a place of intense joy, intense happiness. Um, That's what ultimately banishment, expulsion from the Garden of Eden depicted. 
you're being expelled from one place and, and then ultimately we will be brought into a better than Eden in that it will be immutable. Those are part of the main themes of this particular book. Some other themes that are, we see, and it's helpful as we consider this final sermon ending on, as I say, a high note. What, one of the difficulties I find being a, a book series preacher, I'm not ordinarily a topical preacher, although I think I do topical sermons from time to time, Ordinarily, I start with a book, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, and I plow through. One of the difficulties with going through some of these kind of books, you have a ton of judgment, an absolute a ton of judgment. And so you can't, if you're a book preacher, you can't cherry pick the passages that are just comforting and joy and easy and nice. I mean, you can, but you're not being faithful to the book. If you're going to be faithful to the book, if you remember the book of Ezekiel, the first 14 chapters are God saying to Israel, Judah, I'm going to judge you. 14 straight passages of I'm going to judge you. And then when you pick up round about verse 15, he turns and he says to Gentile, habitual unrepentant sinners, by the way, Gentiles, I'm going to judge you. So judgment comes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Romans 1, Romans 2. And so... What God tells, and I'm going I'm, I'm to have to kind of hyphenate my words, habitual, unrepentant sinners in this book. God says he is holy and I will punish you. And the wages of every sin is what? Is death. And, and so to be faithful to the book, you have to say that. It's not a very popular, it's not a very popular sermon subject, the business of judgment. And one of the things that preaching faithfully what this book teaches if you preach the extent of God's hatred of sin his judgment of sin to the extent that you treat that properly it will make people long for and even crave for God's answer for that which is Christ if you have a low view or no view of God's judgment on sin I would argue you don't have a view of the gospel you, you don't believe the gospel rightly. Jesus is on the cross saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because of judgment. And so you will find that when professing Christians say, Well, we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about the judgment that God talks about. We don't talk about his holiness. We don't talk about his hatred of sin, his damnation upon those who die unrepentant. We don't talk about it. I, I, I know you're not talking about the cross. I know that for a fact, not rightly. Jesus dies on a cross to answer that. So we have the themes of divine judgment. But running clear through the book, and this is what I love about this particular chapter, running clear through those books is God says, I am a holy God, my eyes are too pure to, to dwell with those who live in sin, and I will judge sin. And the wage of every sin, unatoned for, is death. Running through that, is this golden thread of mercy. Yet I will save you. What I, I think my favorite chapter, I, I can't say that. I love Ezekiel 16, where, where God marries his people. I love that one. But I, I was going to say, I, I think I'm close. It's either 16 or 34. Chapter 34, God says this. So you have the themes of divine judgment, and then you have the, the themes of divine mercy. And those two are not those two are not mutually exclusive. One does not negate the other. 
Ezekiel 34, thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for the herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, I'll care for my sheep. I'll deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy, gloomy day. I'll bring them out from the peoples. I'll gather them from the countries. I'll bring them back into their own land. That's that's the, the liberation from banishment. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams. There are these living waters. I will feed them in good pastures. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. What's the New Testament counterpart of Ezekiel 34? New Testament counterpart of this good shepherd seeking and saving his lost sheep, leading them beside still waters and making them lie down in green pastures. New Testament counterpart. John 10. John 10. God is a holy God. God is a merciful God. God has justice on some sinners and God has mercy on other sinners. Does that mean when he has mercy on some sinners that he forgets his justice for those some sinners? No. He exacts his justice on this one. Chapter 47, and for, well, from 40 to 48, crescendos on mercy. Sometimes people say about the Bible and the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is vitriolic, he's mean, he's pugnacious, he's an angry God, such and so... The, the, the Bible is an angry book. If you don't love God in Christ, the Bible is a closed book to you. You are biased against the Bible. The Bible says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that the Bible is a closed book. It's like asking a flaming Democrat, what do you think of Donald Trump? They're never going to tell you anything good. So you ask a hater of the Lord Jesus Christ, what's the Bible all about? He's not going to tell you anything good. But they can't see it. But when God the Holy Spirit gives us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... The Bible becomes an open book to us and we can see that threat. There's mercy. There's mercy. There's mercy. And look how the book ends. How does the book end? They're going to be living in this promised land with these living waters in this holy new Jerusalem, in this new temple coming down out of heaven, which is the glorified church. The book ends with glory. How does the... How does the the end of the canon, Revelation chapter 22, how does the end of the canon, how does that conclude? With Christ coming back. So the person that says the Bible is thus and so, it's a bad idea to call God austere. It's the man who has one talent, he buries it in in the ground. It's a bad idea to criticize God. The whole entire book, if God were merely holy and merely just, and there was no mercy, how many chapters of the Bible would you have? Two. I take that back. One, two, chapter three, one through eight, and we'd all be in hell. From chapter three, one through eight, is the gospel. You have this promise running from chapter 315, chapter 315 of Genesis. So the book of Ezekiel is it ends on a high note that my his people, God's people will be saved ultimately liberated physically and then ultimately completely liberated spiritually and we are going to be in the promised land we will be this new living temple in this new city Jerusalem which is the glorified church we're going to be there and what what, what does God mean by telling his people the end of the game the end of life it hasn't even entered our minds how good it is I worship with my wife this afternoon in Psalm 42 and 
the psalmist says he pants for God. And then he says to himself, why are, there, why are you downcast on my soul? Hope in God, trust in God. And obviously the notion is someday we're going to see him face to face. And as I was praying later by myself about that, how good it must be to be in heaven and how good the eternal estate must be. But we have to die to get there. If we truly believed how good it will be with his living waters. Remember Jesus says in John chapter 7, living waters are going to come out of you. The eternal estate is, is, is going back to Eden, but better. Remember, God created a, a, a holy river in the, in, in the perfect world. It actually split into four rivers. In Genesis, is it two or three? I forget which one. Genesis chapter two. So this, the theme of these amazing life-giving waters is as old as the Bible. So when, when God says, I'm promising you these new living waters, every Bible person would have said, oh, this is like Eden. This is exactly, this is Genesis. And they would have, what was Milton's Paradise Lost? This is Paradise Found. We find paradise in the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will realize paradise in the zenith with the second coming of the Lord Jesus. That's what this is pointing forward to. And the reason this is so encouraging, put yourself in these people's places. They're in Babylonian captivity. This is not like, you know, if you have any kind of investments or retirement money, and I have a Roth retirement thing, which is now worth like two bucks. So it's a good thing I never lost my taste for rice and beans. So this isn't like, well, just hope maybe the market will bounce back and you'll have something there when you're 100. This is not this. You're in Babylonian captivity. And God says, well, here's my comforting message to you. Someday you're going to be in the eternal estate. And there'll be no war there. All men will beat their spears into plowshares. They won't kill or harm in my holy hill. I will be there immediately. The holy angels, all of the souls made perfect, will have glorified bodies. And it will be all life, no death. It will be this. We're going to be in the promised land. To the extent that we believe that, to the extent that we believe it. Remember, we're called to live by what and not by what? To live by faith and not by sight. We look around and think, boy, howdy, doesn't look like the home team's winning out there. Kind of looks like Jesus and his team are taking a beating. Boys are turning themselves into girls. Girls are marrying cats. It doesn't look like the home team's winning. Beloved, the home team wins. Christ wins. We win. We're not going to win here. I love America. I pray for America all the time. I really do. I lose people in this church that get mad at me, that think I don't love America. I love America. If I was called up to fight, if it was a just war, I would fight. But I know what Peter says. There's coming a day when all of the whole earth will burn with fiery heat and the elements will burn. So our true home is not here. It's where this is pointing us forward to. So this is a call. And I know we're looking at this thematically. This is a call to God's people who are living on the earth, we're living on the earth, to set our minds on things above and not so much on things below. It's not easy to do. You know, I just quoted Colossians 3, 1 through 3. This is a call for, for Christians because this is this, this, this temple with, with living waters that acts contrary to the laws of nature. It gets deeper as it goes forward from its source without being replenished by another source, which is contrary to the laws of nature. This supernatural river, this supernatural life-giving waters. 
is calling people who live in this temporal, the Bible calls it a present evil age. And I know you'll say that's probably why you're a millennial and not post-millennial. That is, but I don't really fight about the millennial. My view, my eschatological, my end times view, my real view, I'll tell you right now. I follow a guy named Louis Burkhoff. And I think I follow him because I think he's biblical on this. He teaches and preaches the things called, called personal eschatology. That's where my passion is. It's not on post-mill, it's not on pre-mill, it's not on on-mill. It's on personal eschatology. Personal eschatology means you're going to die and meet God. <laughs> That's my passion. Other folks can fight about the other things that maybe are speculative. I will preach and teach and live on what I know for a fact. God says to these people who are living in time, someday time is going to be no more. God wants us as his people to think about eternity. Now, I've been here for 21 years. There was a young woman who said, I can't even think about it, eternity. eternity. It, it terrifies me. Beloved, we're creatures of time and space. We're created in time and, and we occupy space. We can say the word eternity and infinitude and eternality and those kind of things, immensity. We can say all of those words and understand conceptually a little bit what they mean. God wants us to look around at the things which are, which these people are enslaved, and he wants them to, to look away from those things for a time, and then he promises them in a book that there's coming another time where time will be no more. Not the way that we, we reckon time. And it won't be like this. It will be utterly pristine. That's the business with everything that these waters touch lives. Right now, Right now, you can't go anywhere where you don't see the effect of the fall. And the ultimate effect of the fall is death. You can't, go any, you can't get away from it. You can't go, get away from it. I was at the birthday of one of my grandsons, and we were at one time celebrating the, 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 the little life of this little gorgeous little boy. And I saw my wife take a call, and I saw, I saw her. I thought she was choking back tears. So I went over to my wife and she handed the phone to me and it was my son. And he could barely speak. His, other, his son called out to him, Dad, I can't breathe. And they were at a, in, an emergency room for a little kid, for kids. So here we go. Oh, we're celebrating the life of a little one. And then we're begging God to keep the life of the little one alive. You see what I mean? As long as we're here, we can't get away from that. But God says, there's coming a place, no more death. It will, this, the, the, these living waters will touch everything. Remember we talked about banishment? We're, in, we're banished, but we're, then we're, we're liberated. You know what's going to be banished in the eternal estate? Death. No more. That, that, that's the business of the leaves are for healing. It's symbolical. There's going to be no more disease there. You, you don't have to be 40, 50, 60, 70 to get a disease. You can be in the womb. You can be a newborn. The oldest person I did, very godly woman, that I officiated at her funeral, she was 103 years old. And the youngest baby I ever officiated at a funeral was two days old. So a two-day-old baby and a 103-year-old woman. And the two-day-old baby was born with a form of um, dwarfism. 
disease. God says to his people, no more disease, no more death. It will be all life. And then the business of this water flowing out, the, the water, the temple is symbolical, the altar is symbolical, the land is symbolical. We, we've talked about it many times. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the book of Revelation, chapter 21. It's the bride of Christ, it's the glorified church. I know I used to be a dispensationalist. I love my dispensationalist brothers. I learn a lot from John MacArthur. He is a genius. I differ with him on these things. It's the glorified church. The promised land is not renovated Palestine. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's the eternal estate. We are the living temple of God. The Bible says, remember we looked at the glory of God is going to be in this new temple. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, there'll be no sun there. Why? Because God and the Lamb are the light of it. They're the glory. And God is telling us as his people on the earth in Babylon, I want you to think a lot about eternity. Not in a morose way. People say, Pastor John, you're Irish, and therefore you think about death all the time. I think about death all the time. And you, you may think it's morose, but it comes from my own personal experience. Um, when I was 44, they said, you have liver cancer, you have one more li- year to live, and it wasn't that, it was something else. But my minister came from Tallahassee, and he told me while I was laying in Sacred Heart Hospital, he said, well, John, if this doesn't kill you, it's going to make you a better Christian and a better minister, but it's going to change you radically. And he watched his first wife die when she was 42 years old of brain tumors. It changed me radically. It changed me radically. I think of this stuff. And I think a ton about eternity. What will it be like when we leave here and go to there? Beloved, that's not a morose exercise. It is the most encouraging exercise that we can engage in. I'll tell you a depressing exercise. Think that this earth is all that there is. That's hell. That is hell on earth. If this is the best it's ever going to get, the Hatfields and the McCoys incessantly squawking at one another and there'll be no liberation, no holiness. But there is. And God wants his people to set their minds on things above. Do you have as much love for God in Christ as you would like? Do you have as much love in Christ for other people? Do you you have as much holiness as you want? Do, Do you have so much sin that you're sick of the sin? The thing that will buoy our spirits is the thing that we don't practice. We don't practice thinking about what will it be like when Christ comes back? What will the eternal estate be when we're in the immediate presence? No more death, no more disease, The Bible says in the book of of, of Isaiah, and no one will say what? I am sick. All life. It's often explained by the negatives. What won't be there? Because the positives we haven't experienced in in, in their zenith. It's almost so good we can't even understand it. I want to end with a particular passage from the book of Revelation that talks about It essentially lifts the language of Ezekiel 47 and it tells us clearly 
and even more clearly than Ezekiel does, what it will be like when we go to be with God in Christ. We call it we call it the eternal estate. We call it glory. We can call it heaven. Uh, we use various names for it. I do want to say this. Turn in your Bible to Revelation 22. I want to say this. There are only two realms in which believers and unbelievers occupy. We're either in this present evil age or we're in the next. In the next, when unbelievers die, their body goes in the grave and their spirit goes to be with the Lord. That's heaven. For the unbeliever, when they die, their body goes in the grave and their spirit goes to hell. That's hell. When Christ comes back, our bodies, the bodies of everyone, will be reconstituted to sustain eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And the soul of the unbeliever will be joined to his body. The soul of the believer will be joined to their glorified, perfected body, which is like the Lord Jesus Christ, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, I think. And then comes that estate. Why I'm saying this is a little bit of a perfection. When we die you and I will go to heaven to, to be with Christ, to be with our loved ones who have died in Christ. That's true. But it's not specifically in reference to what we are looking at. What we are looking at is what will occur after Christ comes back on the judgment day and we get a new body. Prior to the judgment day, we will exist in heaven with just our perfected souls. Our bodies will be in the grave. But in the eternal estate, subsequent the coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what this is picturing, is all sin will be put down. We will have a new body with our perfected soul, and we will be dwelling in the presence of God forever and ever. And I hope you did notice that at the end of chapter 47, it said the Israelite believers will be there, and even the Gentile believers will be there, and they're going to be considered one. I tried to reel myself in from this morning and sometimes I I can be a maybe an inordinately passionate person. It grieves me that Christians hyphenate and separate with other Christians for non-religious reasons. Skin color, culture, ethnicity, education, ad nauseum. It it grieves the stuffing out of me. How we unchristianize other people who don't look like us. The living waters go over the whole planet. Christ has come to seek and to save from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, and we're one. And we're going to live in the eternal estate as one. I want to read this and quit. Revelation 22. Verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You ready? There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him, 
they will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, there will no longer be any night. They have not the need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and you will reign forever and ever. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.